The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. And um, I, I uh, we'll just continue this discussion on the Four Noble Truths. <laughs> but I'll, I'll give a little bit of an overview of the Four Noble Truths just to put, put what I'm going to talk about today into context, which is more on the First Noble Truth, the truth of suffering, dukkha. So the Buddha's understanding that he woke up to the night that he awakened was this truth of how suffering is so present in our lives and yet how it is created by our own minds. So the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, and the truth of, the su- of suffering being this, uh, this dukkha, and last week I talked about the term dukkha being derived from the, um, the two parts of that word, du and ka, where du means bad and ka is the center part of a wheel. And so the sense of a wheel being uh, off balance or out of kilter or maybe a little tight with that, if that axle, if that place where the axle goes through is not a good hole, the ride will be sticky or it'll be wobbly or it'll be uneven. And that's a good description of what our lives are like with this dukkha. It's not, when we, the translation of suffering is often, when we think of that word, we often think of a little bit more deeper kinds of suffering, you know. We think of the suffering of death or the suffering of losing a partner or the suffering of having a dreadful uh, terminal illness. Um, We don't necessarily think of the everyday stickiness as suffering. So that's, that's what is meant by this term dukkha. So that the Buddha said, you know, this is what we live our lives with, this stickiness, this unevenness, this uncomfortableness, as well as the deeper sorts of of dukkha. And he says the cause of that is not the cause of the kind of dukkha that we're um, that we suffer from is not so much out in the world although there are events in the world that make us very uncomfortable that make our body feel pain or, uh, or feel uh, unpleasant sensation most of what we actually call pain is actually in our minds. It's our relationship to that uncomfortable experience that exacerbates the uncomfortable experience. It makes us want to run away from that uncomfortable experience or push it away or fix it or change it somehow. And so most of what we actually call pain, most of what we actually call suffering actually is created in our minds. It's created by this wanting things to be other than they are. You're just envisioning now for a moment, you know, if no matter what situation you were in, if there wasn't a sense that it had to be another way, you know, there was no resistance at all, no desire to have it changed or fixed, no um, 
wanting to hold on to something that's trying to slip away, no trying to push anything away. Just complete acceptance. Would there be a problem? So that's what's, what's being pointed to by this term dukkha. And the cause of that, the second noble truth being the cause of that, is that it is our mind's relationship to experience. I talked about the complication aspect in the, in the few minutes in the beginning of the sitting. The complicating is the cause of our suffering. We, we want things to be a certain way or want to get rid of things. So that's the cause of suffering. This, um, the, the term in Pali is tanha, craving. And uh, that term, I'll talk more about that term as we go through talking about the Four Noble Truths. I'm going to go through all of the Four Noble Truths in quite a bit of detail. This is just an overview. But that term, tanha, is transla- the direct translation of that term from the Pali is thirst. So it's got a sense of, you know, when you're thirsty, there's a sense of need, you know, the sense of urgency to, you know, if you're, you're out in the desert and, you know, you're thirsty, there, there's, a, there's a strong sense of um, needing to get that fixed or changed. And so the thirst, the, the, the tanha is often translated as craving, sometimes translated as desire, sometimes translated as wanting. Uh, but the um, the craving's actually a, a reasonable translation because this tanha that causes our suffering has a, a kind of a very sticky quality to it. You know, it's it's not it, it feels like it's not optional. You know, it feels like I'm not going to be okay unless this is changed. I'm not going to be okay unless I have control over my situation and my environment. So there's a sense of of um, strong identification and uh, dependence on having that need met. That's where the, the craving, that's where the suffering comes in, that strong sense of stickiness around these desires. Not all desires are this tanha or are this craving. So that's the kind of state of our existence, you know, that there's this suffering, this uh, unevenness, this wobbliness, this stickiness in our lives. And there's this wanting things to be other than they are. So that's kind of how we live. And then the Buddha comes along and says, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. You know, there's a possibility that we don't have to stick to things that we can let go of that sticky quality, we can let go of that craving, we can let go of that tanha. And he defines that as the ending of suffering. The, the letting go of that very craving. When we know something is causing, if A is causing B, and that's the only way B is caused, then if we can get A out of the picture, then B is going to fall out of the picture. So the, the craving is the cause of that suffering. And if we can let go of that craving, the release from that craving is the ending of suffering. And the Buddha says this is possible. It's possible to let go of that craving. 
Sometimes it doesn't feel so. It sometimes feels very deeply in, embedded, ingrained in the way we live our lives. But he says it's possible. So sometimes, some, some of what we engage in, in a way, in our practice, is an act of faith in what the Buddha says. You know, he says it's possible. Well, okay, he, he then gives his prescription or his statement of how it's possible. How can we realize that ending of suffering? And he says the Eightfold Path is the, is the way, is the path, the way that we can engage in our lives. So this, you know, this practice, this, um, the Four Noble Truths are really a statement of, you know, the first two are really a statement of how things are. The second two are a statement of how we can um, change our relationship to things and, and experience things in a very different way. So the Eightfold Path right view or wise view, wise intention or wise thought, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. These are actions that are meant to be taken. So these Four Noble Truths and the faith that we um, engage with in this practice isn't a faith in kind of something that is beyond us in a way, you know, um, it, it kind of comes back to ourselves. It, it needs to be a faith in, yes, I have the capacity to engage in these actions. Having the faith perhaps inspired by seeing or hearing some teachings that, um, that sound like they might resonate, you know, sound like, you know, this, this makes some sense. I don't quite see how the Eightfold Path will get me to the complete ending of suffering, but... You know, there's some sense to this Eightfold Path, so let me give it a try. And so that's what, it, you know, that willingness to engage, that's kind of the beginning of faith, the beginning of um, uh, I like confidence as a, transfer, a translation for the term sada, which is often translated as faith, or trust. You know, trust that we have this capacity. The, the, uh, the understanding is that as human beings we all have this capacity to wake up. Some of us have more or less difficulty engaging with these teachings, uh, but we all have the capacity. So these Four Noble Truths are very practical. They're not um, you know, just simply statements to be believed, but they're, they're actually tasks to be engaged in. So the Buddha talked about tasks associated with all of these four truths. The truth of suffering should be understood. That we need to understand this notion of what is, what is this suffering? You know, when there is this experience of suffering, what is that? How is, and then how is suffering caused? So the, the part, of, part of understanding suffering has to do with seeing how it's put together. And in that, we begin to deeply see what the cause of suffering is, that so much of our difficulty in our lives has to do with our relationship to experience. Now, that's not to say that we don't... I mean, so often in hearing this, we, we, we hear, um, okay, so I'm the cause of my own suffering, so 
You know, that means I'm not supposed to try to change anything. And that's not what this teaching is saying. It's basically saying that, um, you know, they're, they're the, um, the reason why we struggle has to do with our resistance to things as they are and, and our engagement in a combative way with things as they are. So we engage out of aversion and greed to keep things and hold on to things or push things away. And those lead us to states of, of, of anger or avarice or um, the, you know, the, the holding on, this, this clenching of you know, just having to hold on to something, a fear of losing things. That, that is a kind of a... That's a result of this combative relationship to things as they are. And we can engage with things as they are, not simply by saying, oh yes, things as they are, don't, you know, I'm not supposed to change anything, but rather engaging through compassion. That seeing that there's something in the world that is causing suffering not only for yourself, but for so many people. And working to change that out of compassion for all beings. So that's a very different relationship with change. It's not this fighting relationship. It's an open-hearted relationship, a connecting relationship. So the Buddha said that the craving, this combative relationship, needs to be let go of. That's the action associated with the second noble truth. The um, third noble truth, the truth of the cessation of craving, the cessation of suffering, is meant to be realized. And the fourth noble truth, the truth of the path leading to the cessation of suffering, is meant to be cultivated or developed. And so last time I talked about, a little bit about suffering, about dukkha, as I talked about the, um, the way that uh, you know, the, this definition of the out-of-kilter feeling of life. And I also talked about the distinction between pain and suffering. That, you know, the physical uncomfortableness, you know, if you cut your hand with a knife, being fully enlightened is not going to take away the pain of the body being cut with a knife. You know, the body is still going to feel that pain. What will fall away is the reactivity to that. They'll be like, oh, a cut. And this is, again, not something like, oh, look, I've cut my finger off. Oh, things as they are. Watch myself bleed. Wow, look at all of that blood. <laughs> it's no, you, okay, bind it up, put it over your head, get yourself to the emergency room. You know, you take action. You know, it's not, this is not a, a, a teaching around just, you know, <laughs> not engaging. So, you know, there's going to be pain, but the suffering of that, of, of you know, oh, I don't have time for this, you know, I, I've, I've got to go teach a class right now, I've got, I haven't got time to go to the emergency room, you know, all of that extra stuff. No, you just do what needs to be done based on the situation. So I talked about that distinction between pain and suffering. 
So the suffering that we can be free of is the suffering that is mental. The understanding is, this is, you know, it's an amazing, to me it's a very inspiring thing to think about or contemplate. One of the definitions of somebody who has completely um, woken up is that they experience no mental pain or grief. None. No mental pain or grief. To me, that's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing possibility for humanity, for us as individuals, as practitioners. That possibility. And as we engage, you know, we start to see actually, you know, through the engagement of the Eightfold Path to look at our suffering, we, we start to see that even though, you know, we're not in the place where there's absolutely no mental pain and grief, as we engage, we start to see kind of larger habits of struggle and suffering start to fall away. You know, myself, I had a very strong habit around anger. I just was, you know, ready to be angry in a moment's notice. And um, caused me a lot of suffering, as well as those around me, a lot of suffering to be angry like that as well as physical damage, kicking in walls and things like that. Um, so, you know, the, the, while I can't say I'm, f- you know, I'm, I'm definitely not free of mental pain and grief, I am free of an awful lot of anger. You know, there, there is just not that level of anger anymore. So, even as we start to engage with the path, we begin to see the benefits of, the letting, of letting go of some of our habits. And we start to see how we are free of, our, of some of our habitual forms of suffering. So there's some more things I'd like to talk about with respect to um, dukkha. We don't always notice our dukkha. You know, the, this, is, this is an interesting piece. I think that dukkha can be masked. And, in, and I'll just describe some of the ways this, this might happen. Um, in a state where there's something that we don't like, you know, if there's something that we, you know, want to get rid of or some, you know, some, some situation that we don't like, what our minds do with that, you know, we, 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 we maybe slightly experience the suffering of that, but we don't think of it so much as suffering because our minds are projecting forward. Oh, here's how I can fix that. Here's how I can change that. Here's how I can, um, you know, get rid of that or... Um, so we, we project into the future with a scenario of I'm going to be in control of that and here's what the situation is going to look like. So we kind of project into a pleasant future when that situation will be changed. And so we experience the pleasantness of that imagination and we miss the actual experience of the suffering here and now. 
You know, we are, we are more, we're more projecting into the future. Another way that, um, that this happens, that this dukkha is masked, or the actual experience of dukkha is masked, is that you know, we're often focused on what's happening in the world. So you know, there's that thing out there that um, is bad or wrong. And so we're not fe- feeling so much the impact of the experience on us. We're, you know, focused out on what they're doing, you know, that, that, or what the, the environment is doing. It's, it's, it's their problem. It's their thing. And so we miss the fact that we're actually feeling this out-of-kilter, out-of-balance thing. So we're, we're focused on the thing that we don't like as opposed to the actual experience of anger or aversion or frustration. Now it's not that we don't, that we, that we, um, don't experience or know that we're angry or frustrated, but we're more focused out there. So we're missing the fact, in a way, at, at how much suffering this is causing us, at how much um, challenge this is causing for us. So the, the other piece of that is that sometimes when we have a situation like that and we're focused out in the world, we, um, um, we have a sense that, oh, I can control this. As I just mentioned a minute ago, you know, there's a sense of, of control. And when we have that sense of control, that sense of control also feels pleasant. And so that kind of takes precedence for us over the feeling of discomfort over the feeling of things are, are, are not good. We, you know, we, we, we put our attention into the I can control this and then that makes us feel okay. And so we miss the suffering. Another way that I've experienced um, this missing of suffering is that I have a, a sense of revenge. You know, somebody has done something to hurt me and I'm focused on, you know, wanting them to be hurt in return. And, you know, completely missing the fact that that, that very sense of revenge is, is kind of burning me. It's kind of this very classic teaching of the Buddha. You know, you, you, you want to get some kind of revenge on somebody. It's like picking up a burning coal to throw at them. And you burn yourself before you burn them. But you're so focused on them, you know, you're not even aware at some times that you're burning yourself as you pick up that hot coal. So again, you know, in, in states where there's um, uh, some kind of suffering going on, often what we do is to turn to something pleasant, either a pleasant projection in the, into the future Oh, it's going to be like this in the future. Or we turn to something, some sense of control, which is pleasant. Or an idea that we have. You know, maybe that idea of revenge somehow feels, you know, like, yeah, they'll get what they deserve. And somehow we, we think that's a pleasant experience also.
actually that was a kind of a revelation for me around the notion of revenge. When I was uh, early in my practice, I was working with the anger. Anger was my doorway to the practice. <laughs> that's that's was what was um, really tearing me down and making me feel almost non-functional at times. And at one point, I realized I was mostly angry with this one person. And at one point, I realized that I was just really wanting something bad to happen to him. You know, it's like somehow I thought that would make me feel better if he felt really bad too. (laughs) Um, And fortunately I was practicing, you know, at the time, you know, and I saw, in effect, you know, I saw that, um, that wish to hurt him or, you know, not necessarily that I wanted to, to hurt him directly, but that he be hurt, that he be in pain. You know, that, that that wish was actually, you know, the seeds of war. You know, the, the, that, that wish that others be hurt because we've been hurt. Is, is, that's kind of the very, the very, you know, bare seeds of where war comes from. And it was humbling to see that. It was really humbling to see that, you know, I, you know, in hearing about war, it's kind of like we sometimes think, oh yeah, you know, that, that's over there. It's, you know, it's not, it's not happening here. And if it were happening here, you know, well, somehow I would be apart from it or, you know, I wouldn't be engaging that way. But I saw in my own heart this, this wish to have somebody hurt. And that was like, wow, you know, this, this needs to be let go of somehow. I need to let go of this wish. It's not a good thing to wish like this. So sometimes, you know, these, these ways that we um, engage to... It's, it's kind of a strategy, I think, these maskings you know, of dukkha. You know, that we don't particularly want to feel the dukkha. We don't want to feel the suffering. And so we have strategies. We, we, you know, we fantasize in the future, we, can, we have this sense of control, we get these sense of revenge. So we, you know, we, we have these strategies for navigating dukkha. And ultimately, they're not terribly effective because mostly these strategies are also based in aversion and greed and in delusion. And so the teaching of the Buddha to understand dukkha is basically to turn back to the experience itself, turn back to the feeling of things being off. That we'll, look, we'll see actually that, you know, the, 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 notion that we can become happy by endlessly fixing and arranging the world, it's an endless project. There's no way that we can manage to set up the world to be, I mean, we can maybe for a few seconds set up the world to be just the way we want it, but then things will change again. And then we have to do it again and again and again and again and again and again. And it's endless this navigating and fixing and changing the world to be the way we'd like it to be. And if we can't manage to do it, we're frustrated, we struggle, we suffer. If we do manage to do it, we get that moment of, oh, this is the way it's supposed to be. 
And then, oh, I got to do it again. <laughs> and so over and over again, we just have to keep doing that. So that's an endless, endless cycle. And the Buddha points to that endless cycle of, that's the cycle of samsara. He points to that cycle of samsara. And he says the way out of that is to turn to the feeling of dukkha itself. See how it's actually created internally, that wanting to be things to be other than they are. And again, doesn't mean that we wouldn't take action. It's that need for a particular result. That stickiness, that combative relationship with things as they are. That's the problem. That, the reason that we suffer. So other ways that this dukkha can be masked is when, when we're in a state of um, wanting something. You know, the, the wanting itself, the feeling that we want something itself, when we turn to it, it feels like there's something off happening. You know, there's, there's a feeling of lack, a feeling of need, a feeling of not being whole or complete. And that wanting is reaching out trying to fill that gap or fill that hole. So there's that feeling of lack, feeling of unsatisfactoriness, and this wanting is trying to fill that hole. So the, 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 that feeling of that unsatisfactoriness, that lack, is often masked by the wanting, again, because we project into the future of how it will be when we get that thing. So we miss the, uh, the feeling of that lack as suffering, as dukkha, because we're focused on the future again. You know, we're creating an idea of happiness in the future, and that's a pleasant experience. This thought arising that, oh, this is how it will be when I get that, that new Prius. I won't have to spend so much money on gas, and yeah, that'll be really good. I'll have a little bit more extra spending money for some other things. And we create this happy scenario in our minds, and we miss this feeling of, of lack. We tolerate, we kind of tolerate the unpleasantness of the wanting itself because... Um, of this idea of future happiness. And again, the Buddha suggests turning towards this feeling of unsatisfactoriness, of this need, of this want. You know, if the wanting goes away, if that feeling of lack goes away, what's the problem? Do we need to fill it if that feeling of wanting goes away? The the wanting itself is the feeling of lack. It's interesting for us to reflect on that. We think that we have a feeling of lack and we want to fill it, but the wanting itself is the feeling of lack. So when the wanting goes away, the suffering goes away. That's getting into the second noble truth a little bit. So, um, I have way more I want to say about dukkha, but (laughs) I want to see if there's any 
any uh, comments or thoughts or questions because um, I've been talking for, you know, half an hour, <laughs> 35 minutes here. So let's see, see what you have to say. Yeah, Mary. And use the mic, yeah. Thank you for all, much of what you said today. Um, picking up a burning coal is going to be an image I'm going to <laughs> really the rest of my life, I know that. And sometimes it seems like every endeavor, I'm reading the same books, I'm hearing the same things, I'm, and yet I have to hear things about 70 time, different ways <laughs> to get it. And uh, I just want to know, how you would describe a person that has no... Do you know very many people like that? I don't know many people like that, no. Um, um, I've, I've met some that seem pretty close. Um, you know, I don't know if... I mean, you know, it's the... the um, with monastics in particular, you know, there's a um, a, a, a monastic precept about not proclaiming your attainments. So I don't know where they are, but you know, I've met some amazing beings in my time, you know, where it, you know, up, especially in Burma, up in the in the Sagain Hills in Burma, I met this this one monk. First time I met him, um, I was told that we were going to meet this this uh, this monk who lived in a cave or lived up in an area where there was a cave and um, we were walking there was a group of I don't know six of us walking up to the to place where he lived and we were chatting and talking and as we as we reached the gate of the monastery the monk that was leading us to to meet him turned and said we should come into silence as we enter the monastery and as we entered the monastery, it was in a kind of a, a, a valley, a kind of a bowl. And um, they had whitewashed the, the side of the hill to gather the water as it dribbled down. And that, I mean, just the image for me of walking into that monastery remains because what it felt like, I mean, it was a palpable feeling. It's like walking into an ocean of peace just in entering the monastery. My mind altered just as I walked into that space. It became very quiet. My mind just stopped thinking, just to come into the space of this monastery. And, um, and then we met this monk. And I, was, I just became really, really happy sitting in his presence. He was a very simple monk. Um, he mostly likes to sit and walk, and he doesn't like a lot of visitors, and um, he keeps to silence most of the time. And he's he is just a mo- he's an amazing being, you know. He he is. I just I love to sit in his presence, you know. Just I was just so happy sitting there. And at some point, the you know the the, the monk who could translate for us, he he spoke Burmese. The monk who could translate for us said, you know. He's not going to hang out with us unless we ask him some questions. <laughs> I couldn't come up with any, but you know, I just sat there listening as people asked questions. But then I decided, you know, for future visits, I would have a, a, a question or two prepared, 
you know, so that I, I didn't have to think of them when I walked into that space because it just had such a powerful impact on me. And I think the space, I mean, it had been a monastery for a long time, and so, you know, perhaps there was something about it being a place of practice for, you know, probably for 700 years it's been a place of practice. But I also think it had something to do with this monk. Um, you know, and, and it was funny because walking away from that, uh, that monastery, I turned to Carol Wilson. She was one of the people who was with us, one of my um, co-teachers from the East Coast. And I said, you know, Carol, I don't consider myself terribly sensitive to energies. But then I described my experience as I walked in. And she turned to me and she said, you know, it's not subtle here. (laughs) (laughs) But then she said, and it is also an indication of your, you know, your practice that you you could see that. But... um, you know, so that you know, there was him, and there was this other, this other um, teacher that I met. Very different energy, but boy, he's like he's another amazing being. Um, he laughs all the time. He's about ninety-two, I think, and he's tiny at this point. He's you know just sh- shriveled, <laughs> and he sits in his chair and he laughs and he laughs. And we went to meet him. And I mean, it's so funny because I know it was happening through translation, but I have the sense of having been spoken to directly by him. And he was laughing and he said, yeah, I almost died two days ago. (laughs) I almost died. (laughs) And I just felt like he was, you know, beaming me with this metta. He just has this this metta air about him. so I don't know if they're fully awakened, but boy, they're, you know, different. <laughs> well, I, I've read about people coming to be in the presence of a monk uh, who hadn't spoken in 20 years, and still thousands of people came to sit in his presence. I like what you said. Uh, you felt gifted in a way by being, just being able to sit with them. Yeah, yeah. And there is place, too. That's another thing. But certain places, I used to think, doesn't matter if you're there, it'll happen. It's true, it'll happen, whatever's supposed to happen. But still, there are some places that have been anointed in a way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the talk. <laughs> it really helps me. And uh, it's possible for us, too, because I felt I experienced one of the Sangha fellow came to the uh, yoga. Uh, I'm, I'm doing yoga. And then she, she's the one from here. And she, tell, uh, she came from about three months retreat sitting. And, you know, you know I. <laughs> I felt like radiant mm. from her. It's not from my other yoga practitioners. Uh-huh, uh-huh. From her, radiant energy. I felt so great, <laughs> so good, good. So 
you know, it's possible for us too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good news. <laughs> Good news. <laughs> the other, the other thing too, it, just to point out. I mean, the as I was saying, you know, this realization of the cessation of suffering. I mean, just being in the presence of people who have been, um, you know, on retreat, you know, there, there can be, you know, somebody coming back from three, four months of retreat, they can have that energy. You know, there's such an openness and connection when, when we come back from retreat. And we can also begin to realize small tastes of what it's like to be released from suffering. If we're present, if we're aware, you know, the simple act of Noticing that lack, noticing that feeling of wanting, turning our attention to that suffering, that suffering of the lack, that, that, that feeling of lack is a created experience. It's an impermanent experience, just like everything else in our experience is impermanent. That impermanent experience is destined to fall apart. And if we hang out with that feeling of lack until it goes away, you will feel that release from suffering. In my own experience, it feels like being released from a vice grip. You know, it's like just that holding, 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 and then wanting, 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 and then seeing it disappear. It's like, oh. No more wanting. The wanting's gone. No more need to fill that need. The suffering's gone. So sometimes the Dharma is said to be good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. And I think it's through experiences like this where, you know, in small ways we begin to taste that possibility. We begin to taste the possibility of even just a split second of seeing, oh, this is what it's like to let go of wanting. And it doesn't even have to be an active letting go. You know, it doesn't have to be something... I mean, the active letting go sometimes has a quality of pushing away. When we can just watch the impermanence of wanting and watch it end, basically the, the mindfulness of it, the mindfulness of the wanting, allowing that impermanence to uh, manifest... Instead of what we usually do is, you know, keep that wanting going by, oh, maybe I can get that thing. Oh, maybe I can get that thing. We keep that wanting going. We feed the wanting. So it doesn't tend to end so easily when we're feeding it. But if we can be mindful of it, we're no longer giving it the energy, and it can just release on its own. And so we can witness or watch that letting go that release from that wanting. And that, that is a feeling of the ending of suffering. And there's different ways we can feel that. But I'll talk about more, that more in, in, a, in, a, in a few weeks when we talk more about the ending of suffering. Any other thoughts? Yeah. There's a mic behind you. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, my question is... Uh, Being mindful, it is not possible that someone can be mindful in the work they're doing, in the compassion, in following the Eightfold Path, 
I mean, I, I know there is mindfulness and concentration in it, but mostly all the others. And it's not possible that someone can reach a certain equanimity for that? Certainly. So. I mean, uh, without doing long retreats and being in a cave. And, um, and I mean, I understand. There's, I we can, we can, we can, um, it depends on the person to some extent. And it also depends on our situation. You know, if we have the um, capacity, I mean, the, not the capacity, the, the luxury in a way to be able to go on retreat, it's wonderful to have that possibility. And some of us don't. You know, some of our lives are, are not set up that way. There's a lot of waking up that we can do in the midst of our daily lives. A lot. Tremendous amount. Uh, I teach about this a lot. I teach about the daily life practice. And, you know, in my own experience, some of my deep, deep insights have come... Sorry about that. <laughs> Some of, it rarely rings. <laughs> Some of my deep insights have come in daily life. Um, I'm going to wait. <laughs> I think that's it. No. <laughs> So some of my deep insights have come in daily life um, around suffering, around this wanting, around letting go. Um, huge shifts in my uh, relationship with anger have come in my daily life practice. A lot of letting go. Now for me it's been a, pa- a practice of, of in and out of retreat. But it's been, it's been, you know, I think both sides have been really important for me. Um, but, you know, I do have one story of a person. Uh, I mean, there, there's actually multiple stories. Um, um, the teacher Deepa Ma, do you, have you heard of Deepa Ma? She's, um, she, was, she, I, she taught primarily in the late, you know, in the, like, 1970 through 1990. You know, I think she died in ninety eight, ninety nine, something like that. Um, she was Joseph's and Joseph Goldstein's teacher and Sharon Salzberg's teacher, and she um, she had amazing capacity for concentration and um, woke up fairly quickly in her uh, practice of concentration. <laughs> It seems to be the day for phones. <laughs> so, um, so, but she, she in her um, waking up, she, she lived in Calcutta. You know, she was in Burma when she went to the monasteries and got her training. But she lived in Calcutta, and she went back to Calcutta and lived in this apartment block in Calcutta. And she had this air about her, so I'm told. I did not get to meet Deepama, but she had that kind of air that I was talking about with these monks, you know, that when you came into her presence that you had 
I think a sense of love is what she really radiated, was a sense of just love. And so the people in her apartment block began asking her to teach them what she knew. And they couldn't, you know, go on retreats. They were working people and, you know, with families and responsibilities. And and she trained them to be mindful while stirring the rice. Be mindful while suckling your baby. And her... Um, um, the stories are, and this is in a book, if you're interested, you can. it's a very inspirational book called Deepama. <laughs> um, there are stories that some of those women became enlightened through stirring rice and suckling the baby. It's the continuity of mindfulness that is what will wake us up. And we can cultivate that continuity anywhere. It's just that we so complicate our daily lives. So, um, um, yes, it's possible. I think for different people, I mean, I don't know that for me I ever could have gotten to the depth that I've gotten without my long retreats. And yet I know it is possible for some people. And some people, I think, maybe need to do more long retreat. But you know, there is it, we have that capacity. It really just takes the commitment to be mindful. We can wake up in our daily lives. I mean, I definitely believe that because I practice that way. But I'm always torn because I want to go to more retreats and I have kind of children, grandchildren. Uh, yes. They pull me that way. And, and, and there's always this incredible, although when I'm there, I'm very mindful. Mm-hmm. Maybe not all the time, but most of the time I'm, I'm aware and... But still, it's this incredible pull um, of... of um, I, I had a feeling that I'm at the place now that I am detaching more uh-huh. from those um, karmic, mostly. I think it's more karmic thing. That mm-hmm. I just want to complete with my family and mm-hmm. children, mm-hmm. grandchildren, you know. But um, and 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 detach myself to the extent that I could retreat, mm-hmm. because when I'm sitting, I'm still feeling that I am pulled by them. I mean, me. I'm just feeling them all the time of uh-huh. what uh-huh. I can do for them. Uh-huh. Right? Uh-huh. So that's so the complication that I. Exactly. <laughs> I know, you know, exactly. And it's it's again uh, like as a teacher. I mean, you're a teacher because you're teaching. I've, I've taught two, you know, in my life. And is that um, because you want, you, out of compassion too, not only for yourself, but compassion for people to bring them out of their suffering. Mm-hmm. And as a mother and grandmother, and I see things, and I, I want to bring that, you know, to get them out of the suffering. Yes. Before they get there, you know, before they suffer, I want to get them out of it. <laughs> And I observe that, you know, I feel the suffering and I say, it's not out of control. And I've got so many people and yet it's my children, you know, it's like part of me and part of my karmic things. Yes. You know, the cause and effect things and I want to kind of clear and purify that, you know. (laughs) Well, and you have to realize that they have to make their own choices. Yes. (laughs) 
that's where the equanimity comes in. <laughs> uh, yes. But that, where does the compassion you know, comes in, where you want to get them out of the suffering? Well, that, that is the compassion. And uh, you need, I mean, there can be a, uh, an action taken out of that compassion, and yet we have to acknowledge that ultimately we can't do it for them. So I'd like to propose that you might be able to offer more wisdom if you took time to go on a few 10-day retreats. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've done that. And every time I just... Every time it's, the, again, the same issue that I clear a little bit more, a little bit yes, more. Yes, yes. Oh, yes, definitely. Yes, yeah. So, you know, there's... there's the, I think we, you know... That the retreat gives us something. I mean, it's not a retreat. You know, actually, it was interesting. One person on this last retreat that I taught said, you know, she was talking to a friend and saying that she was going off on retreat. And, and they chastised her and said, you're not going on a retreat. You're going on an advance. <laughs> so, you know, we do retreat, meaning, you know, uh, secluding secluding ourselves from the world for a time. But we don't do that for its own sake, you know. Some people do that. I mean, like this monk, you know, he has, like, retreated for his life. And that is a gift to me when I can be in his presence. And so his gift is his life to those who can come in contact with him. Um, My choice is to come in and out of retreat, and hopefully in the coming out I have something to offer and in the engagement with my life. And so I think, you know, we, we have this, um, you know, those of us in the world can think of the going into retreat not just as something for ourselves, but also as a gift to others. You know, that the purification that happens in ourselves will be offered. You know, not, not even, you know, necessarily consciously like the person in Sue's yoga class, I think, was probably not consciously thinking, oh, I'm going to offer this gift to the yoga class, you know, but Sue got the sense of radiance coming from her, and that was a gift. So, yeah, so we need to stop. So I'll probably talk more about dukkha the next time I'm here. Next week I'm away, um, and Chris Clifford will be here. Um, So um, I'll see you in a couple of weeks.